Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are reminded of your word to us in James that you want us not to just be hearers of your word, so deceive ourselves. You want us to be doers of your word. And so we pray now as we consider this part of your word that you have breathed out by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, there's uh, nothing, I think, that detracts uh, more from the gospel message than a hypocritical Christian. Uh, someone who claims to know God and, and love God and, and glorify God, and yet their life looks anything like it. Their lives are marked by sin. Uh, perhaps they're not much different to the world around them at all. Now, of course, it's true that Christians still sin, and uh, no Christian will be perfect until they reach heaven. Uh, but it is also true that the gospel should change us. Uh, and the non-Christian instinctively expects that this uh, will be the case. Uh, that's why it's such an issue when, when a Christian uh, falls into serious sin. Uh, it brings the, the whole life-changing message of the gospel they claim to believe into disrepute. But uh, sadly, we hear all too many stories of this happening, uh, whether it's the pastor who's had an affair or the bishop who supports same-sex marriage, or the married couple who walks into church with a smile on their face and then goes home uh, to have a bitter argument, uh, the Christian worker who uh, turns a, a blind eye uh, to corruption, uh, or the student who is really, well, uh, involved in all kinds of things in their personal life, which is very different to the Christian faith. Or perhaps you've been personally affected by Christians like that. Maybe you have, you've left a church because of hypocrisy. All the people are there singing the songs with the smiles on their faces, but it all seems fake. Maybe you even doubt the truth of Christianity. Well, it ought not to be so. And we, Paul warned at the end of uh, Titus 1 last week in verse 16, of those who profess to know God but deny him by their works. Uh, so let me ask as we begin this evening, how has the gospel changed your life? Uh, what is the relationship between what you, your belief and your behaviour, between your lips and your life, your convictions and your character? Because the gospel of grace ought to bring transformation. Uh, faith should produce fruit, Grace should produce godliness. And that really is the main point of, of Paul's letter here uh, to Titus. Uh, we saw last week uh, that uh, Titus had been sent by the Apostle Paul to Crete, which is a little uh, island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and he was there to, to put the church in order. Uh, Paul was passionately concerned that the gospel would go out from there, uh, and he knew that if that was going to happen in that godless place, then what was required was truth backed up by a godly life. And so he began the letter in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, speaking of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Uh, 
He wanted truth and godliness together. Uh, And Titus was to begin this endeavour by appointing godly leadership to the church. Uh, He would find elders who were were blameless in their uh, their marriages, blameless with their children, people who were self-controlled with their temper and with their tongue, uh, people who were hospitable and holy, people who would teach sound doctrine and contradict those who disagreed with it. Uh, Because in Crete, there were many false teachers we read of last week. Uh, advocating religion, but teaching a false gospel, uh, doing it all for, for selfish gain. Uh, and their false gospel was resulting in all manner of, uh, of unrighteousness and ungodliness. So it was possible that you could perhaps not even tell the difference between the Christians in Crete and the rest of society. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they denied him by their works, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so Paul turns again to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, as he, as he maps out for Titus then the shape of the godly life. It says verse 1 there, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, Paul wants to make sure that there's no gap between theology and practice for Titus. His conviction, his character, his belief and his behaviour, it all has to come together as one package. He was to teach sound doctrine, or literally healthy doctrine, that would lead to a a healthy, godly Christian life. Uh, And it's always the case when we study the Bible, we have to make sure that those two things are together. We must make sure that uh, our application is never just tacked on to the end of our Bible studies, uh, that it's never just superficial. Uh, Right doctrine is important because uh, our beliefs will always affect our behaviour and diseased doctrines will always lead to destructive practices. But we can never stop just at belief. There must be change in our lives. Uh, That's why we call our small groups growth groups. Uh, Because we're not simply meeting together to to study a passage and and get some new knowledge in our heads. We want life change. We want to be growing more and more like Jesus. And so in verses 2 to 10, Paul outlines for Titus what these godly lives are going to look like for the various members of his church, old and young, men and women, Christian leaders, Christian workers. Uh, and we guess we notice immediately that Paul is not content with, uh, with generalizations. He, he gets right to the specifics because God has all made us as different people, men and women, old and young, leaders and servants and so on. Uh, and it's really crucial that we understand this uh, because we live in a time when the differences between the genders is, uh, at least in the West, but it might come here as well, it's becoming blurred. When the, the different roles of men and women in ministry is, is being denied. But God has made us all different. Uh, he's made us old and young, male, female, leaders, servants, workers, and he's placed us in this community together with people different from us, that together, individually and together, we might be growing 
in godliness. And so Paul begins with the older men uh, in verse 2. I hope you don't put me in that uh, category. Uh, A little bit older than some of you, but not quite there yet, I think. The older men, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and steadfastness. Uh, Basically, older men are meant to be dignified and mature. Uh, They are to act spiritually in such a way that befits their age physically. Uh, They're to be sober-minded. That normally means that they don't get drunk, but uh, it can be generalised that they're they're restrained, they're self-controlled, they're they're level-headed. And so whether they eat or they drink or they go shopping or they engage in recreation, they're in control. They're to be dignified. Uh, They don't play the fool. Uh, They've grown up. They're serious about life. They're serious about God. They're, They're the kind of person that is respected and revered. The kind of person that you would go to for advice, a role model, if you like. They're self-controlled. Literally, they're of a sound mind. They think about what they will do, and they do it. They're responsible. They're sound in faith and love and steadfastness. They're living a healthy Christian life, full of faith, full of love. They don't give up when the Christian life is hard. They press on. And so old age is not the time for us to fall backwards in godliness. Now, it's the time to keep pressing on. You see, we don't ever uh, retire from the Christian life. There might come a time when we need to pass on the leadership to, to those who are younger. But we don't retire so that we can spend our time on, on luxury and travel and spending on ourselves. Older men are meant to be the pillars of the church. They are meant to be living examples of what the Christian life looks like. Respected, dignified, mature. And so if you are an older man, then this is what you should aspire to be. And if you are a younger man... Well, this is your goal. Look for people like this and follow their example. Well, Paul doesn't expect any less of the older women uh, in verse 3. Older women, are likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Uh, Older women are to be reverent. Uh, That's a word that is taken from temple worship. Uh, They're to act basically as if they're in the very presence of God all the time, reverent, holy. Uh, There's two struggles in particular that they're to avoid. Uh, They're not to be slanderers. They're they're not not to use their tongue to harm others. Uh, No nasty gossip. No backbiting. They're not to be slaves of much wine. And perhaps as a, as a truth here, as, as, as we get older, maybe there's the, the temptation to just let things slip a bit. Let those nasty words come out and not hide them so much. Let the drinking begin a bit more. They are to teach what is good. 
Now, many uh, families have uh, family heirlooms or little traditions that they pass down from generation uh, to generation. Uh, my family has some interesting ones. Uh, my father has a, has a sword. It's a colonial sword right, that the, the, the British police used to use in Australia uh, during the gold rush. Uh, hopefully it wasn't used to kill anyone or anything like that. I don't know. <laughs> and he also has a Bible that, uh, that was uh, his grandfather's Bible that has been passed down and down. Uh, and so it is within the family of God. The truth of the gospel and the godly life that goes with it is to be passed on from one generation to the next. The older man is to be the pillar, the model, the example. The older woman is to teach the younger women. Now we need to think hard how we're going to do this in, in SMAC too, because most of us are pretty young. Uh, and so it's great that we have some that are a little older amongst us. How can the, the, the older men here be being pillars in this congregation? How can the older women uh, be those uh, using their age and maturity to mentor and train the younger women? If you are an older person, who is it that you are discipling? If you are a younger person, who is discipling you? Well, in verse 4, we see what the younger women are meant to be taught. Uh, older women teach what is good, verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, I wonder what you make of that uh, little description of what a young woman should be. Uh, maybe a, a little uncomfortable for some of us. Uh, perhaps when we read those words, uh, working at home, we have in our, in our minds maybe uh, that, a picture from the 1950s or something with the, the, you know, the wife waiting at the door for the husband to come home, uh, you know, they're mopping the floor, dinner's ready to serve on the table, something like that. Uh, now, Paul is not against women working. Uh, and we need to remember in Paul's day that the, that the home was the centre of economic activity. Most people either had a farm or some kind of, of family trade. And so for the woman to be working at home meant she was working. She had a job. What Paul is opposed to here is not women having jobs, but the woman who neglects her family responsibilities. Women are to love their husbands and their children. So here we need to go back, I think, to Genesis 1 and 2 and God's good design. Uh, there we see men and women created equal but different, both in the image of God, equal in dignity and value, but different in gender and role. The, the man created first to work the ground and keep it. The woman created second to be his helper. And so, of course, as the helper, the woman was to work. She would help the man in his work. But the woman's main job was the family. As the helper, she was to love her husband and her children. Now, we live in the age of feminism, don't we? Uh, where women are urged to uh, pursue their careers, often at the neglect of their husband 
uh, and children. And feminism has brought good things. At least now if a man and a woman do the same job, perhaps probably they'll get the same pay. That's just fair, isn't it? But as uh, people pursue their careers, it often happens, isn't it? Newborn babies left to the confinement lady. Children left to the grandparents or to the mate. It really ought not to be so. The woman's primary focus should be to love her husband and her children. And perhaps that does mean being a stay-at-home mom. What a wonderful thing to do. Perhaps it means working part-time, uh, or at least resisting the, uh, the promotions to, right to the top so that I can prioritise my family. The young woman is to love her husband and children. And secondly, young women are to be taught to be self-controlled and pure, to, to make wise choices, uh, to be modest. And again, that's something that, that uh, girls sometimes have to learn, isn't it? It is possible to lead others astray by the way that you dress. You should be pure. Thirdly, they're to be submissive to their own Husbands. Uh, again, this ordering in marriage is not a matter of equality. If you just go into the workplace, the, 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 the worker will submit to the boss. It doesn't mean he's any less human or valuable than his boss is. Think about the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father. But both are equally divine. And so with marriage. The marriage is ordered. The husband leads. The wife submits to his leadership. But both are equally valuable. Both are equally important. And in Ephesians 5, we see that, that this, this ordering is meant to reflect the relationship between Jesus and his church. As Jesus, the, the ultimate bridegroom, lays down his life for the church in sacrificial service, and the church responds uh, in loving obedience uh, to Jesus, as so also in the marriage. The husband is to lay down his life for the wife and the wife is to submit to her husband. Now, I suspect, again, that these truths might be a little bit difficult uh, for some of us to accept. And that is why I think Paul insists here that they should be taught. That the older, more mature women should model it, teach it, and encourage it in the lives of the younger women. So again, we should ask the question, older women, who are the younger women that you are mentoring? Younger women, who are the older women that you can imitate? Well, in verse 6, Paul turns then to the younger men. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Hopefully I'm in that category as well. It is remarkable, isn't it? He's just listed 17 other characteristics for everyone else. He gets to the young man and he's got one. Just be self-controlled. It's as if all the immaturity, all the character flaws that comes from being a young man is all kind of boiled down to this one thing. If we could just learn self-control, everything else would fall into place. Man with self-control can control his temper control his tongue. Man with self-control can moderate his career aspirations. Man with self-control can limit his Facebook 
and his computer games. Man with self-control can get out of bed and get to church on time. A man with self-control can, can resist when they're using their computer, that, that site or that video they shouldn't be looking at. If young men could just learn some self-control, grow up a bit, everything else would fall into place. We can't stay young forever, can we? At some point we need to learn. Now, of course, it's not only young men who need to learn self-control. Uh, in fact, it's the whole church. Every group has been asked to have self-control. In chapter 1, elders are to be self-controlled. Here, older men, older women, younger women, they're all meant to be self-controlled. The whole church needs to learn to be self-controlled. But especially the young men. And so whether you struggle with a Facebook addiction or greed or a drinking problem or computer games overdose or an impure relationship or whatever it is, you need to control yourself. You need to learn to say no. And whether it's prayer or Bible reading or church attendance or loving service, you need to control yourself. Learn to say yes. Self-control must be taught and it must be learnt. And if that's to happen, the whole church must be involved. The older men must be there modelling what self-control looks like. Well, next Paul turns to Titus himself and we see what a Christian leader should be like. Verse 7, he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Uh, Paul expects uh, Titus and all other Christian leaders to be, to be models for the church. Uh, the leader is not simply to instruct the congregation on what a godly life looks like. They are to live it. They are to lead by example. And if we take the characteristics from uh, chapter 1, uh, we see what this looks like. He's to be an example in his hospitality, welcoming in strangers to his house. He's to be an example in his family life, with his marriage and his children. He's to be an example in humility, an example in how he controls his temper, an example in his generosity and contentment. But the leader is not only to give the example. He's also to teach. And that teaching has three characteristics. It has integrity. It is backed up by their life. It has dignity, a due seriousness in the preaching. And sound speech. He must teach healthy truth carefully. And so whether you are a growth group leader or an intern or aspiring church leader, here are the characteristics to have. Godliness and faithful teaching. Well, finally, he turns to the slaves in verse 9. Slaves are, uh, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, 
so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Now, we might find it a little bit strange in this, uh, this household uh, code to see these slaves turn up here in verse 9 and 10. But in the, the first century, slaves were an important part of most households. Uh, there were over 50 million slaves in the, in the Roman Empire. One estimate said that one-third of Rome were slaves. And now, we have to remember that, uh, that in general, slavery in the first century was not like slavery in 19th century England or America. That was far more cruel. And, of course, it is, is right that uh, Christians like Wilber, uh, William Wilberforce have always been at the forefront of abolishing slavery. Christians should always do that. But there is nothing inherently wrong with, with being a servant. And here, I think, uh, maybe we're not slaves to our employers per se, but we can draw a few parallels. We are to be submissive. And not just when the boss is looking and then contradicting him behind his back. Well-pleasing, not argumentative. Uh, not talking back to the boss. Polite, respectful. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith. We're utterly trustworthy. Don't steal the boss's time. We're dependable. We're the kind of person that the boss will put in charge when he goes away on leave. Now, of course, none of these things are absolutes. If the boss is doing a corrupt deal or if he's fixing the accounts, you can't go along with it. Your boss is Jesus above your, above your earthly boss. But we do honour Jesus when we are this kind of dependable, submissive servants. And what a difference it would make in our workplaces if we were like this and others were like this as well. Well, there is the shape of godliness. In verses 11 to 14, uh, Paul turns then from the shape of godliness to the motivation for godliness. I think you agree with me that the the standard is pretty high, isn't it? What's going to help us to live in this way? Well, the motivating factor here is the two appearings of Christ. There's the appearing of grace in verse 11, and then the appearing of glory in verse 13. See, Christians live between the first and the second comings of Jesus. And both of these comings, the past and the future, ought to motivate us to live godly lives in the present. First is the appearing of grace, in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, grace is, is God's unmerited favour. Grace is when you get a gift that you don't deserve. It's when a parent forgives a wayward child. It's when a, a spouse overlooks their partner's faults. It's when you, you have a car crash and then you decide to let the other person go free of charge. Jesus came 2,000 years ago to show us grace. See, our, our hearts are, are black with sin. In our selfish rebellion, we've rejected God as the, as the ruler of our life. And so often we live for our own passions and our own desires. The Bible says we deserve judgment. We deserve to be separated from God and his presence 
in the place that Jesus called hell. Now, I'm just trying to think of uh, how to illustrate it because it's, it's a reality that it's easy to talk about, but maybe it doesn't exactly sink home for us. And so maybe you can imagine uh, uh, a traffic jam. That's not a pleasant experience. Now imagine a traffic jam that goes on forever. <laughs> you never get home. Now you imagine that you look, you turn on the news, you see all the disasters, the, the, uh, all of the, the, the fighting and the, and the divorces and the broken families and the broken nations. And it goes on forever and ever and ever. Only bitterness, only anger, only selfishness, forever. No escape. It's a horrible existence. That's what we deserve. And yet Jesus gave us grace. He didn't treat us as we deserve. He entered this world to save us. He lived the life that we have not. He died the death that we deserve. He took upon himself all of our sin, all of our judgment. He went to hell in our place, if you like, so that we can be forgiven. If we've truly grasped that reality, it really will transform your life. See, this grace not only saves us, it trains us. Look again in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Now here is something we must, we must grasp. The gospel is meant to bring real change in our lives. Uh, as a church, we're, we're always on about the gospel, and, and rightly so, we should be. But, but head knowledge of the gospel is, is not good enough by itself. If we've truly understood the gospel of grace, our lives will be different. There will be real change. But notice it's the grace of God that will bring this this change. It's not simply religion. It's not simply a set of rules that you must follow, you know, the top ten tips to a healthy marriage, as if that's going to change everything. I think Malaysians, we understand this. Malaysia has lots of rules, doesn't it? Remember all the driving rules we're meant to follow? Remember the one about the yellow line? What's that one about? Oh, that's where you're not meant to park. Ah. And you can have all the rules in the world. It doesn't mean that you're going to follow them. Because rules doesn't change the heart. If there's going to be real change, it must happen within. It's not like these false teachers in Crete. Avoid this food. Observe this holiday. Do follow these steps. You'll be okay with God. It doesn't work. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 on the screen. If you've died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why, do you, why, as if you still were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value. 
in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can have all the rules in the world, it will not change your heart. What we need is a heart transplant. We need the grace of God by the Spirit of God changing our hearts from within so that we truly love God and wish to obey Him, so that we say no to ungodliness and yes to self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And so as you reflect on the death of Jesus in your place where He bore your sins, what sins do you need to say no to? Impure thoughts? Gossip? Greed? Pornography? Inappropriate relationship? Legal downloads? Where do you need to grow? Love? Patience, humility, self-control, submission. Look again at the cross. The grace of God. That's what will motivate change, real change. But it's not only focusing on the past and Jesus' death on the cross. It's, it's looking forward to the future, to the coming of Jesus in glory. We look at verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. See, Jesus came 2,000 years ago with a purpose. He died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so he might one day bring us to a perfect world where, where sin and sickness and, and, and death and disease and all that messes up our world will one day be no more. Uh, Jesus is our great God and Saviour. It's an un unambiguous uh, description of his divinity. He is God. One day every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess uh, that he is Lord. He will return in glory, bringing a perfect new world. And that is our hope as Christians, that we look forward to. See, we've been saved from sin, but we've been saved to serve. Now, that was really the point of the Old Testament reading from Exodus 19. Uh, God had rescued Israel from Egypt. Uh, the, the Passover lamb had been sacrificed and he brought them to Mount Sinai and there as he summoned them to himself, he commanded them to obey. They were called to obedience. So, so with us, Christ as the ultimate Passover lamb. He, he died on the cross to redeem us from our empty way of life. And he saved us that we might serve him. He summoned us to obedience. Now just imagine that you were uh, in a swimming pool uh, uh, and, and you were drowning. Not all Malaysians can swim, right? But it's okay, the lifeguard jumps in. He comes in to save you from drowning gives you some mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, right? 
saves your life. Well, your life should change, isn't it? The last thing you should do is jump back in the pool again. <laughs> but that's what we often do, don't we? We've been saved from sin that we might live in it no longer. Now, some people in SMAC, I've noticed, are a little bit passionate about badminton. There's a few others that like board games a bit. Some that like marathons. I can't quite understand those ones. <laughs> and a few that like eating, maybe just a couple. But for each one of us, if we have truly experienced God's saving grace, if we've truly grasped the future glory that we are headed to, then our greatest passion in life will be to produce good works, to no longer live for the now, the passions of this age, but to live for the future. We are motivated by grace in the past and a glorious hope in the future. And it makes all the difference. But did you notice also that we are motivated for these good works by sound teaching? And it's only as the gospel of grace is proclaimed and applied that we will produce these godly lives. You see it all the way through the passage, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 3. Older women are to teach what is good. Chapter 2, verse 7, in your teaching, show integrity. Chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, lest no one disregard you. See, these truths are be, to be proclaimed, that the Bible teacher is not to be timid. He is to exhort the people, plead with them. You really must change. The grace of God should turn you inside out. And so those of us who teach as well, whether a Sunday school teacher or a growth group leader or an intern or a pastor or whoever we are, we never just teach content. We beg people, demand that they change because of the gospel that we believe. And finally, point three, we see the, the point of it all. The goal of godliness as we live godly lives motivated by the grace of God, we will adorn the gospel. Again, we see it over and over in this passage, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Younger women are to submit to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Chapter 2, verse 8. Titus is to teach with integrity so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say. Chapter 2, verse 10, the slave is to act in, in obedient submission that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. The, the goal of godliness is that we adorn the gospel. Uh, the, the word adorn is where we get the word cosmetics. And so our lives are to be, if you like, are to be like the powder on the face or, 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 or the lipstick on the lips of the gospel. A godly life is to make the gospel beautiful, attractive. 
Our lives are to be walking advertisements for Jesus. And so as people look at our, our lives, our, our decisions, our, our words, our priorities, and so on, it makes the gospel message look well, wonderfully beautiful. Now, I'm not fully endorsing here uh, what we call friendship evangelism, uh, where we kind of live a godly life by itself, but we never say anything. Our life will only adorn the gospel if we speak the gospel. Uh, while our, our mouth remains closed, then our good life is not a testimony to, to anything but our own goodness. Certainly not the gospel. But as we do live the Christian life, it is very attractive, isn't it? Just imagine the, the, the older men, dignified, mature, the, the older woman, reverent, gentle. The younger woman loves her husband and her children to bits. The young men, self-controlled, worker, respectful, trustworthy. You walk into a community like that, it will be a beautiful sight indeed. A powerful force for the advance of the gospel. Now, just last week, I was at this conference in Australia. It was a great encouragement. 1,800 university students from around Australia and 20 other nations gathered together to be equipped to teach the Bible to others. Well, there was this one uh, student there who shared his testimony. Uh, he'd uh, turned up to his campus during the, the orientation week, uh, and the Christians had a, had a little store set up. He said that they looked dorky, right? But they were handing out flyers, inviting him to a free pizza night. And as all students who are offered a free pizza know, he had to go along. <laughs> and so he turned up. And when he did, he was a little bit surprised. Realized they weren't that dorky after all. But they did really love each other. They were different. And he started reading the Bible. Someone paid for him to go along to a conference. He became a Christian. How wonderful. And that's how it ought to be, isn't it? So the non-Christian comes into our community. And our lives adorn the message that we preach. And so as you consider your life, are you a hypocrite? Or a herald? Do you shame the gospel? Or do you adorn the gospel? What, what about us as a community? Old and young, male and female, Christian leaders, Christian workers, Christian students. Does our life together as a community show that we believe the gospel? What difference does it make? I know many times it does make a huge difference. It's tremendously encouraging. But I also know there's many times that we fall short. When it's just in our heads, it's not in our hearts. It's not enough for us to keep talking about being gospel-centered. Our lives must be transformed, self-controlled, upright, and godly.
Now, many of us will be well aware that we have failed. Maybe we have lived as hypocrites. Maybe we have said or done things that are gravely inconsistent with the gospel that we believe. (coughs) Or what about us? Look again at the gospel of grace. Begin at verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Isn't that marvellous? No matter what we have done, God's grace is sufficient to forgive every sin. No matter what we have done, I can be saved. I can be one of God's holy people. No matter what I have done, God's grace is powerful enough to change my heart and make me godly. And so let us again look at the gospel of grace. Look at the cross where our Saviour bore our punishment in our place. Let us remember again his glorious return, the wonderful hope we look forward to. And whether we're old or young or male or female, the Christian leader, the Christian worker, the Christian student, let us press on, adorning the gospel with lives full of godliness. Hypocrisy shames the gospel, but grace-driven godliness makes the gospel message very attractive indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your grace. We know in our hearts that there are so many ways that we have fallen short of your righteous standards. We don't deserve to be your people. And yet we thank you that Jesus died in our place, that he took that punishment that we deserve, that you have made us pure and righteous and holy in your sight. And so, Father, as we consider what he's done for us and the hope that that lies ahead, that you would be transforming each and every one of us to be living self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Help each one of us to say no to sin and to yes to godliness. And we do pray that if there is any amongst us this evening who does not yet know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, that they may be able to look on at our community and see people that have been transformed from the inside out, that you may bring them to put their faith in Jesus as well and experience your grace and your salvation. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.